Today on Osteobites, we're talking with Dr. Scott Sauer of Bujardet Sciences on preventing osteosarcoma lethal recurrence by targeting disseminated tumor cells. MIB Agents Osteobites webinar and podcast present the latest in osteosarcoma treatment, research, innovation, and hope. Welcome to Osteobites, everybody. It is a beautiful spring day. I mean, here in Vermont, we never get to brag about the weather, but it is it's gorgeous today which I'm going to use that as my excuse for having eaten my snack already, which was delicious. It was a um, little coconut delight. I um, still have my coffee though. Um, today, we're talking with Dr. Scott Sauer of Bujardet Sciences about preventing osteosarcoma lethal recurrence by targeting disseminated tumor cells. It's going to be great. Uh, Dr. S Scott Sauer is a cancer researcher with training in the fields of cancer biology, immunotherapy, and organic chemistry. He's also a violinist, just, you know, side note, <laughs> Dr. Sauer received his PhD at Duke University in organic chemistry. His postdoctoral in cancer biology focused on mechanisms of therapeutic resistance and disease progression. He received numerous postdoc awards, including his work on the interplay between cancer progression and environmental toxicants. Dr. Sauer's work, most importantly, was among the top three finalists for our 2021 Outsmarting Osteosarcoma Grant. Um, we need more research funds, please, so we can fund more research like Dr. Scott Sauer's. Um, it's another story. Um, our panel today uh, includes 2021 MIB junior board member and OsteoWare, Kara Scrubis, and Amy Woodcheck, a physician's assistant and childhood cancer survivor. I'm your host, Ann Graham, OsteoWare and Executive Director of MIB Agents. MIB Agents is an osteosarcoma nonprofit dedicated to making it better for our community of patients, caregivers, doctors, and researchers with the goal of less toxic, more effective treatments and the hopeful eventuality of a cure for osteosarcoma. We make it better in three ways through direct patient and family support with many programs to ensure that no one walks alone through this disease, through education, including our annual factor conference, Osteobites, our testing and research directory, and our book, Osteosarcoma from Our Families to Yours, which is available for free on our website in Chinese, English, and Spanish. Um, and finally, through research by funding it with you, and sharing it and supporting the researchers and physicians that undertake it. Dr. Sauer, just get us um, started with introductions, please. Sure, sure. So thank you for that wonderful introduction and the, the chance to speak with everybody today. Um, as you said, I, I'm Dr. Scott Sauer. I'm the head of preclinical discovery at Bujade Sciences. And today I'm going to discuss a little bit of our work in trying to prevent uh, lethal recurrence in osteosarcoma. That's the main question. That is the driving force behind everything that we're doing. And there's a growing body of evidence that disseminated tumor cells or little tumor cells that break off of the primary tumor and land in distant sites, primarily the lungs, um, actually act like ticking time bombs, lying in wait for months, if not years, undetectable before eventually flipping a switch and beginning a period of rapid growth leading to detectable metastatic lesions. The way that this occurs 
is cells from the primary tumor actually break off of the tumor and travel into the bloodstream where they circulate through the body, eventually landing at a distant site. In this case, primarily the lungs. So you'll see this little blue tumor cell right there. When it lands in this site, it primarily sees normal healthy tissues. And for a tumor cell, this is a fairly hostile environment as opposed to the primary tumor where all the other tumor cells are working in cooperation to kind of turn the large tumor area into a pro-tumor environment. When you go to a normal healthy set of tissues, they actually have the opposite function. They're trying to stop your tumor from growing. And so these tumor cells, after they break off and become DTCs, will actually sit there and kind of become dormant. They'll stop growing. They'll just kind of hang out for a bit. Uh, and eventually, as I mentioned, over a period of months, if not years, these cells will begin rapidly dividing. And it's only at this point that you can detect these lesions and see that you have metastatic recurrence. Now, as I mentioned, the normal uh, lung tissue is not really a hospitable environment for these DTCs. And so there must be some sort of unique features or phenotype that the DTCs possess that allow them to survive and eventually thrive in these environments. And while great strides have been made using anti-cancer agents that target rapidly dividing cells to not only treat the primary tumor, but prevent some recurrences. However, this type of approach hasn't really changed patient outcomes in decades. And so to really beat osteosarcoma, we have to take different approaches. And at Bujade, our philosophy is that if we can specifically disable these disseminated tumor cells by targeting whatever unique features they possess, that we can actually prevent osteosarcoma recurrence, leading to a cure. In order to selectively disable these DTCs, we actually want to target these characteristics that we've actually termed kind of a catch-all term called metastatic endurance. And this kind of encapsulates any of the traits that are unique to DTCs, but in particular, their ability to go dormant where they're not rapidly dividing and would not be targeted by um, classical anti-cancer agents, as well as stress adaptation. They adapt to the fact that they're in a hospitable, inhospitable environment and they eventually are able to survive all of these insults and eventually grow out. And once they've endured long enough, that's when they emerge out of dormancy. And much like if you can kind of conceptually think of a runner, you know, one of their best attributes is their endurance. And if you were somehow able to knock out that runner's endurance and you get to this person on the, the bottom right, you're not going to win. The runner is going to lose. And our thinking is that if we can knock out metastatic endurance, the cancer will lose. So we've pulled together kind of a, a unique uh, screening platform to help us identify drugs that could actually target metastatic endurance. And the core concept amongst all of these things is that they're all three-dimensional systems that somehow mimic the environment that these cells uh, would see once they travel to these distant sites. So on the left is kind of an example of what's happening uh, in human disease where these cells kind of get to the lungs and they see this, what's called an extracellular matrix, which is just kind of a complex mixture of all sorts of different proteins and things. And it provides uh, signaling as well as a, a structure for these cells to implant on and then eventually grow through. 
And we have two in vitro systems where we grow cells um, in plates, but in these plates, we've actually put matrix on the bottom and have the cells grow in three dimensions to more accurately reflect uh, kind of the metastatic endurance promoting conditions. Uh, beyond our two in vitro systems, we also have an ex vivo system that relies on growing our cells directly in mouse lung slices, which we think is you know, the most direct um, uh, mimicking of the conditions of these DTCs. In addition to these three systems, we've actually uh, validated and optimized them in-house with several highly metastatic osteosarcoma cell lines. And we think it's the combination of these two approaches that will truly allow us to find drugs that target metastatic endurance. So digging in a little bit into our in vitro systems, uh, they're made up of two different but complementary systems, but both kind of uh, with the same underlying principle. So system one, we call basement membrane extract or BME, and that was developed by our collaborator, Dalit Barkan at the NIH. Um, BME is a um, extracellular matrix that's derived from a mouse tumor. It's called an Engelbreth home swarm tumor. And so this 3D set of proteins is kind of a tumor-like matrix. Uh, we also have a kind of complementary approach that was developed by our CSO, uh, Bob Hurst and his collaborator, Michael Einott at Oklahoma, where they use small intestine submucosa, actually from pigs, uh, which models a more normal-like matrix. And so we think we can kind of model both of those things and the hope is that we'll find drugs that are active in both systems. Um, looking to this graphic over here on the top right, uh, this applies to both the BME and the cisgel system, where instead of just plating these cells directly on plastic, where we know they just continually rapidly grow, uh, we put a layer of our extracellular matrix down, and then we float the cells in media on top. And eventually over um, a 24-hour period, the cells will kind of slowly sink down into the matrix, and they'll actually enter into a period of dormancy where they're there, they're not dead, but they're not really growing. However, at some point over, in this case, a six-day period, these cells do start to grow. They flip a switch from dormancy and they begin to kind of grow like crazy. And that is characterized by these two graphs down here. Um, so the left graph shows a human osteosarcoma cell line that has kind of a low metastatic potential. And you'll see that over this full six-day period, there's not really much growth. There's almost no change and it's a fairly flat line. And this is kind of indicative of long-term dormancy. Uh, however, when you do the same conditions with a highly metastatic cell line, such as MG63.3, which is actually derived from the low metastatic line, and what we see is while there is this initial period of dormancy, uh, on day three, something changes in the system where the cells begin to rapidly grow. And it's this type of system where we really want to be able uh, to find drugs that are inhibiting this outcome. So just as an example, um, our initial screening uh, looked at about 200 compounds that we thought might be interesting based on some of our scientific advisors, as well as just what's in the literature. And interestingly, just with that small set of compounds, we did identify a few drugs that were specifically active in 3D. And in addition to their activity in 3D, 
in one cell line, we've actually seen that occur consistently across multiple cell lines. So just as an example, uh, here's one nanomolar VUJ0101 treatment in our BME system. Now vehicle just means untreated. So the media you normally grow the cells in, that'll be our vehicle. And if you follow the vehicle, just like on the last slide, slow growth for three days, and then you see a huge uptick at day three. However, when you treat with even such a low dose as one animal of VUJ0101, you significantly inhibit the ability of these cells to break out and grow rapidly over the six-day time course. And we've seen that this compound was active in a human model, a mouse model, and a dog model of highly metastatic uh, osteosarcoma. And in addition to kind of this conserved activity across cell lines, we've also seen a very similar phenomenon in both our BME and cisgel systems. And so we think taken together, all of these really support that this is a, a highly active agent against metastatic endurance. Now to truly validate a lot of these hits, we wanted to move it into a system that was closer to the human condition. So that's where the Puma assay comes in. And as many of you know, this was developed by Chand Khanna at the NIH, where the cells are injected into a mouse, they rapidly go to the lungs, and the lungs are harvested and sectioned. And this allows us to basically test many, many conditions on a single mouse. And we can follow over time, over typically a two-week window, our kind of glowing tumor cells. We just measure it on a microscope and Basically, the more uh, glowing bits you see on your field, the more tumor cells there are in the lung tissue. Um, and this has also been validated in other labs as well as in-house in multiple OS cell lines. So just continuing on with VUJ0101 as an example, um, you can see that in this top left image, it might be hard to see, but there's very faint single green dots diffused throughout that lung slice. Um, however, if you don't treat it with drug over 14 days, you see much, much stronger signal. It's no longer single dots, it's clusters, it's spread out throughout the lung. Um, and you know, this is exactly what we want to avoid. When we treated it with VUJ0101 over this two-week period, what we saw on day zero is almost identical to what we saw by day 14. There's hardly any signal. And what little signal is there is very small, what looks to be single cell or small clusters. And so this plus our in vitro um, data really supports that this compound is active against highly metastatic cell lines in a metastatic endurance program. So, you know, we not only want to identify compounds that are active against metastatic endurance, but we want to find things that are selective. Um, we feel that you know, great strides have been made with finding cancer drugs that target rapidly dividing cells, but we think we need to take a different approach. So we're trying to find things that are active by targeting metastatic endurance. Uh, and as you can see here, this is kind of repeating a little bit of the BME and Puma data for VUJ0101, which is showing at one micromolar, 100 nanomolar, and even at one nanomolar in our previous data, we're able to significantly inhibit the growth of these cells over time. And that that same phenomenon is seen in Puma. But when we treat the same exact cells growing rapidly flat in a dish, as most um, kind of cancer assays are done, we're not able to inhibit these cells at any dose until we get up to 10 micromolar. And what that means is that we're actually seeing activity of VUJ0101 
at doses 10,000 times lower in our 3D systems than what we would expect if we were just doing kind of classical screening. And so, you know, we think that this is really exciting because this drug might not have even popped up had we just been doing large screens in two dimensions like would normally be done. In addition to identifying single agents that we're also interested in a potential combination approach uh, to treating metastatic recurrence with the overarching idea of we'll take hits that are active and selective in our 3D models and that have differing mechanisms of action, just they work in different ways. And those are the ones that we'll try to combine. So just as an example, here's a graph again, you don't treat it, they grow slow and then they grow much faster. You treat it with VUJ0101, you're able to block the day six growth very, very well. Uh, at a slightly higher dose, we found that another compound, VUJ0282, is able to inhibit almost to the same degree, if not the same degree, as VUJ0101 did. But what we thought was really exciting was when we combined these two, we were able to push that inhibition even further, almost complete inhibition of growth. Uh, by day six. And looking at the doses of these compounds we used, one nanomolar VUJ0101, I already told you, was 10,000 times lower than what you would need in two dimensions. And 10 nanomolar VUJ0282 is a hundredfold lower than what we would need in two dimensions. So we think that you know, by potentially combining some of these agents, we may even be able to use lower doses than what we would have to use as a single agent. But you know, when all is said and done, uh, it's not just how fast we can identify these drugs or drug combinations, but how quickly can we deliver these to OS patients to actually make it better? And to do that, we need to combine our novel platform to discover these things with a rapid and efficient clinical development plan. And to do that, once we've identified hits in our initial discovery phase, will then quickly translate them to clinical trials in osteosarcoma canine patients. The reason for doing that is that dogs spontaneously get osteosarcoma, just like humans, and that that disease progresses and acts very similar to the human disease. So it is the best non-human model for osteosarcoma. And what we can do is by starting trials in dogs, we can not only potentially find something that will help dogs and be approved for the veterinary market, but all of this information will help inform and expedite our young adult and adult osteosarcoma trials, pushing an FDA approval hopefully even sooner than had we not gone into canine patients. In addition to um, you know, going from canine to adults, we're also specifically, or maybe not exclusively, but we're putting a priority on uh, identifying a repurposed drug to do so. Repurposed drugs are just drugs that have made it to the clinic in some form or another. And so there's significant safety and toxicity data that's already out there. And that can only help to streamline the human trials even faster. And so we think by combining all of these different parts, we can move from discovery to an approved drug in as rapidly a uh, timeframe as possible. And just to give you kind of a high-level timeline, um, this year in 2021, our plan is to screen 3,000 drugs in our in vitro assays, uh, with most of these drugs being repurposed, 2,700 out of 3,000. And the repurposed drugs will allow us to take advantage of this 505B2 regulatory pathway that I was discussing. Um, 
The, the awesome thing is that we've already screened over 1,200 compounds so far this year, um, and we've identified multiple highly active and selective hits across differing mechanisms. And so we think that we're already in a good spot, and we expect to find quite a few more uh, throughout the rest of this year. And then the plan will be in 2022 to validate our most exciting hits in our Puma studies, as well as beginning the initiation of our dog clinical trials with the agents that are kind of prioritized based on their activity across all of our models, as well as other kind of clinical development um, considerations. Uh, once we've kind of initiated the dog trials, uh, the plan would be to begin a single phase two trial in humans by 2023 with an eye on an accelerated approval by 2026 of either a single drug or combinations of active drugs to prevent metastatic progression and recurrence. So we feel that you know, kind of this aggressive timeline, our unique platform uh, kind of poise us to really rapidly find game-changing treatments for osteosarcoma. But even beyond that, we've pulled together an expert team that we think will you know, help us deliver on this kind of vast goal. Uh, some faces I'm sure are familiar to you guys in the, the MIB community, but everybody on the team has, has really strong expertise and, and a really strong passion to push this forward rapidly and effectively. And I wanna thank everybody for your time today and just kind of leave you with the thought that, you know, through the commitment of not only the researchers, but also the patient community, the constant scientific innovation, as well as just the clarity to know what to do and how best to do it is how we're actually going to make it better in osteosarcoma. And I'm happy to answer any questions you guys have. This is really cool work. Like, and true story, like your team is brilliant. Um, Lee Hellman and Jan Kana and um, from the scientific side, and I'm sure the rest are brilliant too. I just don't know them that well, but, but um, Dr. Hellman and Dr. Kana are really um, extraordinary people and scientists. Um, Definitely. I mean, just the little time that I've, I've known both of them, it's, it's apparent that they're not only you know, super smart, but you know, dedicated to this community and it's, yeah. it's infectious, you know? Yeah. When people are that that excited to to really drive home a project, you get that excited too. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, okay, Kara, got a question? Is VUJ0101 an FDA approved slash repurposed drug? So it is a repurposed drug. Um, and I believe it may be approved in a, a non-cancer indication right now, but um, it's, it's not currently approved for, for any cancers yet, but it does fall in that repurposed bucket. And so we would still be able to kind of accelerate the development of that if it ends up being kind of our, one of the leaders in the clubhouse. There was a question that came up was um, wondering why the pig intestine is used in the research. Yeah, yeah, that, that was actually a question that I had too when I first joined <laughs> Bujade and um, you know, I can't necessarily speak to the exact idea or genesis for this idea, but in speaking with our CSO, um, they had tried a few different materials, but they were kind of laser focused on finding something that was normal, something that represents kind of a non-tumor environment. Um, and I think that the, the, four, or the driving factor about choosing pigs is that they had access to it uh, where they were, as well as the fact that pigs are generally considered to be the one of the closest 
animals to humans. Um, you know, some companies are even looking at growing organs in pigs to transplant into humans and things like that. So I think that was another factor. They wanted to find something because we don't want to take intestines from humans for experiments, <laughs> um, but this is kind of the next best thing. Okay. What role does adaptation play in DTC or is it a totally different thing? Um, adaptation, how? Do you know as far as like kind of how the cells, like do the cells change basically as they're kind of migrating through the body? Yeah, so, you know, one of the beauties of our approach is that we're um, kind of a phenotypic platform. So we don't actually know necessarily all the mechanisms that we're targeting, but we do know that there are quite a few mechanisms that DTCs uh, kind of either alter, either they go up or they go down from the primary tumor. And so those are the things that are definitely what's unique to the DTCs. And there are kind of some genetic and protein targets um, that we know of, but instead of trying to determine whether or not it's, it's what's driving the DTC biology, or if it's just kind of a consequence of other adaptations, I think that's why we wanted to go for this phenotypic approach and in hopes of, you know, not only finding something faster, but potentially informing the rest of the community. And something I didn't mention is that um, you know, once we kind of finish this screen through all of our libraries and stuff, the goal is to not keep everything private and, and proprietary in-house. It's to actually kind of share with the community through publications and things. Uh, some of our findings about some of the other mechanisms that, that are popping up as, you know, we kind of hit them with different drugs because, you know, while we're not necessarily manipulating the genome by upregulating a protein or downregulating to see if it's that one thing, um, there are classes of drugs with known mechanisms. And so we can actually tease out some of that just by seeing like, okay, this drug does work, that one doesn't, and this whole class does. So maybe that's the main mechanism by which DTCs are able to survive. We had Dr. Inez Lose on recently and she's doing high output drug screens. And there's a question on if this is, if your research is similar or related or can they overlap? I would actually think of them as, as somewhat complementary. Um, when you have kind of a high throughput drug screen like that, you can do, you know, not just all the repurposed drugs that are known, but you can do stuff that nobody's ever even thought of. And so I personally like to think of kind of high throughput drug screening as a really good way of finding, you know, brand new molecules that we had no idea about. And so what I think is that the complementarity between us is that we may find some agents that are specific to metastatic endurance, and they may find some agents that are specific to just targeting rapidly dividing cells, um, but there will be overlap between those as far as agents that may be able to do both or um, you know, agents that we just practically wouldn't be able to screen in our assays because they're just not quite as high a throughput yet. Um, we have a question that says, trying to understand why tumors survive and go to the lungs. DDC, tumor microenvironment, tumor adaptation, and others, what's the difference? So that is, you know, something that we're all still trying to figure out in the field. Um, although I think, you know, the general, one general idea is that they, they travel to the lungs primarily because the lungs are perfused with a lot of blood cells, or sorry, the blood vessels. And so if blood vessels are the primary route of transmission, then odds are they're going to travel at least through the lungs and odds are probably get stuck 
in the lungs at some point. Um, but it's as far as you know whether or not the lung tissue excretes some protein or some factors that are kind of more uh, prone to DTCs landing in that site, I think that's still to be seen. These are really great questions, guys. Keep them coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, keep the questions coming. Um, while we wait for um, other questions to come in, um, we do have some burning questions for you. <laughs> so Amy, do you want to start with um, like three? Sure. Um, our first burning question is, what was your first job? Ah, my first job was working at Chuck E. Cheese, actually. <laughs> and I worked there for about four years doing both uh, kind of the game room, you know, fixing games, stuff like that. And of course, everybody eventually had to take a turn or two in the mouse suit. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, great. So I have a question about that. So <laughs> Chuck e. being around Chuck E. Cheese and a mouse and then now mouse models, like any guilt? Like any, <laughs> any guilt? See, as somebody, as somebody who was trained as a chemist, I don't think I ever had any plans on working on mouse models. <laughs> I, I had, I had always, you know, decided not to go the MD route because I wasn't necessarily, you know, wanting to poke people with needles and stuff. And I kind of assumed that would translate to the mice. But I think if you're doing it for a reason that is as compelling as this is, you, you overcome that pretty quickly. And Chucky doesn't look that much like a mouse. <laughs> or it could be revenge on Chuck E. Cheese. Take that mouse. Yeah. That might be a more subconscious thing. <laughs> oh my gosh. That takes some that takes some real endurance on your part to like, I mean, just having had kids and going to Chuck E. Cheese, like I 20 minutes in, I'm like, I don't want to hear that song anymore. <laughs> no, don't strike up the band. Oh, and that they have like a six-song loop that they yes. use for about six months. And if you're just one eight hour shift, you hear the same song seven oh, times. That's painful. <laughs> wow, that Sorry, Amy, go ahead. That's okay. Um, if you could have a superpower, what would you choose? Hmm. It almost seems kind of frivolous, but I would love to fly. It's like, I don't know that that would necessarily help a ton of people or, or be that useful, but it just sounds really fun. Plus you're in Boston. I mean, fair, right? Travel. Yeah, you know, I got to escape, escape the cold every once in a while, just fly over to the islands. And then uh, what inspired you to become a researcher? Mm, great question. So I think that's kind of a multifaceted reasoning. Um, research in general, I definitely was drawn to uh, probably in high school when I took um, AP chemistry. One of, and actually even biology. So both of those classes, I had teachers that were you know, super passionate about what they did. Uh, they took really interesting approaches to, to teaching us the subject matter and it just really engaged me. So I knew I wanted to be in science, but I would say it's probably my experience with cancer, uh, both in my family and in family friends and things that I knew I wanted to work in cancer specifically. And so that's why you know, I did my PhD in organic chemistry where I was really just making molecules all the time, but the hope the goal the entire time was to then leverage that to try to do something biological for, for humans. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, what do you hope for in the future? Ooh. <laughs> I guess I hope to be out of a job. If we do our job right, I hope to not have to worry about 
identifying new compounds. It'll just be a solved problem. And I guess I'll have to learn something else. Me too. I hope so too. That's okay. I love learning new things. Yeah. What do you need to accomplish your work? Ah, that is the million dollar question. So other than a million dollars, no, I'm just kidding. Um, obviously funding is always important. Ideas are important. You know, we are all constantly thinking about this stuff all the time, but uh, in science, you know, the more I read about the history of discoveries and things, the more it's kind of fortuitous discoveries that were accidents in the lab or a lay person who's not a scientist just says something seemingly naive and then you actually test it out and find something exciting and unexpected. Um, what inspires you now? <laughs> I was actually just talking to Anne about this a little bit, but the, the 2019 Factor Conference really inspired me. I mean, it, I was already inspired to work hard and that was always going to be the case, but uh, just just meeting all of the, the osteo warriors, their families, the community of researchers, MIB, it was just so inspiring to see people persevering against everything that happens, no matter what. And honestly, if if that doesn't help you, you know, wake up in the morning, get to your job, and try to do something positive, I, I don't know what will. As a as like a target from this research, do you see finding these drugs as an addition to upfront therapy, just after upfront therapy, or where do we have an idea of where the target it might land? Sure, that's, that's a really good question. I think it's it's something where we have an idea, our, our kind of thinking right now is that this would be something that you would take basically right after um, or right at the time of diagnosis, basically for the rest of your life. And that's why we were really focused on getting low dose treatments or as low a dose as possible, because if you're giving somebody a drug for that long, you don't want it to impact healthy cells. You don't want it to have you know, long-term toxicity and things like that. Um, and so the plan would be that this would be kind of um, either after or right on top of kind of standard of care therapy and that it would actually, you know, be used throughout the, the life of the person to keep it at bay the whole time. Are there any side effects evident in your research of VUJ0101? So at this stage, um, we can't really tease that information out um, because we're exclusively looking at the tumor cells themselves. Um, I guess we would have a very faint idea if the lung slices of the mice started having issues too over the two week period, but they appeared to be fine for that. But we won't really know until we start doing the canine trials. That'll actually give us kind of the best idea. But, you know, dogs are still animals that we love and, and care about. And we're not just going to throw stuff that we have no idea about into the dogs. And that's the other reason why this kind of repurposed drug um, approach makes it a little bit easier, a little bit less risky, and hopefully faster. When you do a trial in canine patients, does that allow you to get approval faster for repurposing an FDA-approved drug? So I don't necessarily know that, you know, you could say to the FDA, hey, we did this, make it faster, but it, it gives us a wealth of information as far as dosing and how often you need to give it and what types of strategies. We can do all sorts of stuff uh, in the canine trials that will basically allow us to lop off 
whole sections of the human trial. Um, and, and we think that that is really going to be our, our kind of best approach. Uh, due to the, the variances between each individual's osteosarcoma, is there a hope that you would choose one, one target and be able to be used across the board? Or is, will this kind of research that you're having be able to give us like several targets and then have directed therapies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that totally makes sense. And I'd say ideally it would be you know, perfect if one agent, all disease, nothing, everything's gone. And um, while there's hope that that could be possible, I think that's one of the other reasons why we're approaching the combination strategies um, in hopes of both addressing you know, a, a broader heterogeneous population, but also preventing kind of uh, therapeutic escape. You know, if we're, if we're hitting it with some sort of targeted agent that's hitting, you know, one specific pathway, these cells are able to adapt, as you guys mentioned, and, and they could adapt away from that pathway and then still be able to survive and thrive. And so if that does end up being the case, I think a combination strategy would be um, one way to hopefully overcome that. Um, but it's something, you know, that we'll just have to, we'll have to see as we move forward. Like any, any and more new research is better than no new research, right? So we'll... Right, exactly. And, you know, maybe we find a good target, but not the best drug. And then we can move that forward with, with new compounds. And that's always yeah. the hope too. You know? Right. And any and all strategies to just get to the end goal. Right, right. Keep on going. <laughs> oh, for... We will, I promise. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. How far are you from canine trials? Uh, so the plan is to hopefully be there in two years. And I think if we if we continue on this track, we have a, a good shot of getting there. So that was a lot of questions and um, and a lot of answers, which, which which is so nice. Thank you, Dr. Sauer. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Great questions. It makes it much easier to respond to them. Yeah, right. Um, well, you know, we try to keep it try to keep it simple, but, you know, on point. <laughs> so, um, all right. So I think most people know that sunflowers face the sun. What is perhaps lesser known is that when there is no sun, sunflowers turn to each other. They face each other when there's no sun. That's what we do at MIB Agents, and that's what moms have been doing since always. So this week we're honoring Osteo Warrior Moms Everywhere with a new limited edition t-shirt and tank top that features sunflowers facing each other. It's available in all sizes, five colors. Please get yours. The link will be shared on video and podcast descriptions um, after we're done with this, with this webinar. And um, you can also go to our social media or our Mother's Day page on our website, mibagents.org. Um, I would recommend you go on our social media platforms because there are such great stories, including one from Kara about her mom and a bunch of our junior board members talking about their mom. And it's just, oh my gosh, it got all dusty in here when I was, you know, reading them the first time. So I recommend on that. Um, let's see, next week, we're going to be talking with physician and researcher, Dr. Lillian Gunther of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute on utilizing CRISPR screening to identify novel genomic targets for osteosarcoma. That is um, gonna be super awesome. And um, just wanted to also say, be sure and subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can be notified of new episodes 
and view our library of this and all Osteobytes topics and speakers. You can also watch on our website under Osteobytes and listen to Osteobytes wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so I guess that's it, you guys. Um, did get a comment. This research sounds so great. Thank God for these great minds. Yes, thank you. Appreciate that comment. Um, thanks everybody for joining today. Really appreciate it. And um, thanks to our guest, Dr. Scott Sauer, for sharing your time with us today and your expertise for osteosarcoma patients. We're mad fans um, of, um, of osteosarcoma researchers and, and really appreciate your work. Um, thanks also to our panelists, Amy and Kara. And um, thanks everybody for being here. We'll see you next week.